I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This time on Below the Radar, host Am Johal speaks with Andrea Luca Zimmerman, an award-winning filmmaker and cultural activist. In this episode, they talk about her experiences engaging in long-term, deeply researched, collaborative filmmaking. We will be showing one of Andrea's films at SFU's Vancouver campus in the Woodward's building the week following this episode's release. Join us on October 15th at 5 p.m. for a free screening of Here for Life, a film that blurs the lines between reality and fiction created by Andrea Luca Zimmerman and theater maker Adrian Jackson. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Andrea Luca Zimmerman. And if you're in the area, I hope to see you at the cinema on October 15th. Head to the show notes for the event details and enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Really excited to have Andrea Luca Zimmerman with us today. She's a filmmaker and an artist, a curator. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself. I'm a filmmaker, but I also write and I program other people's work. And um, in terms of my filmmaking, I work often very collaboratively over very long periods of time and with deep research, um, exploring counter memories to structural violence predominantly, but really uh, finding, I guess, wayward and fierce dreams that we can dream together to make a world that we can all live in. I'm going to ask you about some of your specific films, but maybe I'll start with uh, what got you motivated and involved in filmmaking? What was your sort of entry point into the world of making films? Originally, or many years ago, I I always knew I wanted to make films, but I come from a very, I guess, sub-working class background, where there was absolutely no support for anything creative or any support even from within the, the family structure I inhabited then. So I had to kind of navigate away and I left school very early and I didn't know how to how to even do it. Like, it sounds crazy now, but like, I, I literally didn't know. All I knew was I wanted to. And then when I came to the UK when I was um, 19 or 20, I met somebody, I was a hairdresser and I met somebody at a bus stop who was telling me about a course you could go to to learn filmmaking. (laughs) And I went there and it was all pre-internet, right? But I went there. um, I didn't have a portfolio or nothing, but I took, I felt like for my future and and I got in. And that's how I started. I'm going to ask you about uh, one of your films, which I haven't had a chance to watch as of yet, uh, but Tiscafa from 2013. And it's set in Istanbul. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the making of that film and sort of the ideas uh, behind it and what you were trying to do with that film project. Tashkafa was like my first long form film and it was made wandering the streets and I learned everything I think about filmmaking through making this film because first of all I went to Istanbul for a different project and I saw the street animals and the street dogs and how the different communities cared for them sometimes they didn't um, but more often than not they they did and so I became very interested in their history and also the the way in which the municipality and the country in general because it's not just um, in Istanbul try to get rid of them but throughout history every time they were banished from the city in cruel ways very cruel ways so if you think about like for example they were put on an island to die of thirst and hunger to eat each other and many many thousands tried to swim back and drowned um, because they wanted to be back in the city and other attempts like for example to make lampshades out of their skin so horrendous horrendous ideas were practiced but every time something like this happened, the 
city burned down or disease came or whatever. And so they became part of the kind of myth. So long as there are the dogs, so long as there are the Turks. And I thought that was very interesting. But also there's a particular form of Islam, which is very gentle and an interpretation of it. That means we have to look after every living thing, including the plants. We are responsible for them because we are also sharing the space. So the kind of relationship between, on the one hand, a structure that has its own history of violence, also within communities, be it Kurdish and Turkish and Armenian and Jewish and Greek and all of these communities that are still within this place but have been wedged apart through historical uh, circumstances. And then you have these street dogs which feel they have the power on, on the city, but actually they have no power. They are given and granted that power of protection by the communities. So I needed to make this film. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the question of how to start, and I... I made a treatment and I knew I wanted representation and I set up all these interviews with people and and then I realized really quickly it was my wandering the streets that was the the way to make this film so it was me and the producer we were we do, did everything so during the days and nights we just walked around uh, often me also by myself with the camera and then we translated each evening and we did the transcription and we did the pre-edit everything like this and I I realized that through like another object almost, like in this case, the the street dogs, and they're so sensual, right? There's a sensuality of another being around you in a city. You feel it. Everybody who has been to these places, you feel it. If there are cats and dogs and other street animals that are well looked after you, there's, this, yeah, there's the sense that we, we don't have here, for example, in Europe or North America. And so to how to hold that, how to hold that level of care that we all afford to these creatures, those uh, people that did and there are also people from all kind of stratas of society like homeless people up to the very wealthy and I wanted to show how the relationship between the commodity of a dog like the dogs you buy for a lot of money I mean I don't know what happened in Canada but here for example in the UK during lockdown so many people wanted to have dogs that all the rescue centers ran out of dogs and all the pedigree dogs now cost minimum three thousand pounds which is extraordinary so you can buy a dog for six thousand pounds now I mean I've never seen anything like this so there's this commodity of a certain type of value now uh, attributed to this to these creatures and then there are the street dogs which are just roaming around and have fleas and are sort of looked after um, and I wanted to really explore like what is coexistence and and how might coexistence allow us to find a way through through the kind of yeah structural violence that we've made in this world and continue to make and what are the processes of encounter and seeing each other and, and I also worked with John Berger the writer and critic on the film and he wrote a very, very beautiful book called King, which he published without his name on it on the first edition. And then in the second edition, they just put his name on, even though he didn't want to, because he wanted to make a book that wasn't um, dependent upon his fame at that time when he wrote it, but that could be encountered in a different way. And it's told through the eyes of a, of a street dog uh, living within a community of homeless people and uh, drinkers and survivors and hustlers. And it's the dog's love for the details of what life is and right at the end of the book so gentrification happens as happens in Istanbul as is in much of my work right the the kind of uh, city clearance and stuff is always present the bulldozers come in and and um, demolish the houses the people have built out of cardboard boxes and everything they could find and the end of the book the dog runs and says come on everyone we're gonna run to the sea and we're gonna start afresh and anew and the dogs running and running and running and the inferno is happening and then by the end 
dog's exhausted, but it's just about it made it to the sea with the whole group of people. It thinks and it turns around and there's nobody. And it's such a devastating book. It's so I for, for me it was such a profound book on who's allowed to dream and what are the hero, heroic dreams we have in spite of everything that is going on. And there's always also this. With, without the dreaming, we will not survive. So I wanted to make a film where it could dream about coexistence, you know, just by shaping the lens a little bit. Uh, I was going to ask you about Estate a Reverie, which we've had the honor of screening here in, in Vancouver at SFU. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where that project started from. It was quite an immersive, active filmmaking, you know, filmed over several years. Estate was made where I also lived for a long time. So it was my community and it was started or I started it because we knew that the estate is going to be demolished. So we had just lost our campaign to save it. And I thought, okay, either I can make, um, I can just move on. <laughs> I was working all over the world then, right? Apart, and I didn't want to really work in my in my immediate environment because I just thought it was too close and it's too closely involved and these are my friends and this is my my life but it changed everything I think for me there because I started to go around with the camera trying to see what is actually there and I found for example a hairdressing salon on my estate which I'd never noticed because I have a shaved hair since I'm 18 and but anyway, this hairdresser, so I walked in and her youngest client over the whole period of time we were filming with her for years was in her 70s. So it was 70 and above. So it serves a certain purpose, her hairdressing salon, and it was welcoming. So people could bring their pets into the hairdressing salon, which is very unusual in, in London. It was a beautiful, beautiful space. And a lot of knowledge was in that space because people had lived in the neighborhood sometimes for, you know, born here and uh, or came just after the Second World War when they were kind of repatriated. And it was really an amazing space. And a lot of the people who were kind of put or lived on the estate were put here almost as a dumping ground because it was a very, very economically marginalized community. There were drifters from all over the place, but also people who were awaiting, for example, asylum status were put here. So temporary accommodation. And there were many people from all over the world, but also people who had just come out of hostels or prisons or um, people like me who took flats, which were hard to let. And because I had absolutely no money and ended up living here for 18 years instead of two and like we all did and we made this incredible space together and I wanted to show the lives of all of these different people again about coexistence because we all had to make this life together and we all had to negotiate the space without ever for example calling the police to solve problems or how to deal with neighbors when there's conflict and it became a safe space also for young people to go through because the community would look after or try to look after younger people who were running away from gang violence for example which was very very prominent um, in this neighborhood. So it was, I learned a lot, a lot, a lot. And I thought, how to do this justice? Because it would just be erased by the new narrative that was proposed through the government, in particular around our estate, saying this is a sink estate and we're going to have progress and going to have a lively, diverse and vibrant community. And it was such a lie. And I was like this, you know, of course I can fight it even with language, but I wanted to make a counter-memory. So I really, instead of making an expository film, I... I decided, even though I filmed a lot of the campaigns and everything around it, but I decided to to make a, a film where people's lives could be shown in the fullest because we all have full 
lives. And the circumstances are always wedging us apart and also are blaming each other for the demise, for example, of the estate. Oh, it was the people who came later. Oh, it was these people. But actually, once you start to really think about it, it's always structural. And it's using the kind of pitting against each other of usually one you know, community against another who are all struggling to survive. So it became really important. And it was possible because I obviously lived here, so it didn't cost me anything. And then I couldn't easily raise funding for a film which was so process-oriented. I still have the same problem now, right? And it's between art and film. It's between community work and activism. So it doesn't really sit anywhere, even though in the end it becomes this film, which is full of poetry and it's, you know, surviving, still is being shown all over. So I had to train people to help because I couldn't do it all. Sometimes we had 80 people in a scene and I needed support. So, so yeah, I trained people from the estate up to help with camera or with sound or everything so everybody got a kind of knowledge we had a, like a mini film school on the estate in order to make this film it was an amazing amazing experience you know one of the the things that's really striking about it for me in looking at uh, documentary experimental or, or other films that uh, delve into these issues it's very clear where your social political orientation or allegiances and solidarities lie but in choosing not to go the route of a more didactic kind of uh, mode, there is a kind of an aesthetic turn of a kind of radical poetics that's built into the way that you work because you miss, mess with the kind of temporal and, and traditional narrative form. And I'm wondering, what is it about that form of filmmaking that particularly draws you in? Because in some sense, the, the other way is kind of the easy way to go. This is like a a choice and a, a turn in a way, but also perhaps broadens um, how it's received in a, in a kind of affective sense. So for me, like I love cinema and I've really loved cinema. So when before I had the chance to make films, I was really drawn to, because I, I couldn't sing, right? I, I, otherwise I would have done music probably, but I'm drawn to the poetic as an expression where it's the vernacular. It's something that can't be squashed almost by the forces to be, I feel like, because it's intangible almost for me, the, 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 the deeply poetic poetry and spoken word in particular often comes into this kind of genre for me. And music in particular is a rebellious practice as well. And it's wayward because we celebrate each other with joy. So formally, I feel it's not enough to have just one genre. It's not enough. It's ideological, actually, for me to campaign against the singularity of, of certain genres, be it the documentary genre or whatever it is, because our lives are not reducible to just one way of expressing. And often they're expected to be reduced to one way of expressing. So it's about the idea of the gaze and often funders. For example, I had the opportunity at that moment when I was filming it because we were the first big housing campaign that became visible because we did a, a large-scale public artwork um, on the facade of our building to start this whole process. And it was so suddenly, it became very it written up in all the big magazines and newspapers. And so we had a lot of attention. So I had this producer who wanted to make this film and said, but you have to do a three act and you have to go, this is our struggle. This is how we struggle. And this is what happened. And then I go like, this could be just any struggle. Yes. And it's important because the solidarity across these struggles is what gives us this hope. But actually what I, I, I needed to do, I felt like really deeply was to go against any of these desires of, of the narratives that already haven't helped us in our fight because it's always grassroots level up and we have to have joy in our activism and we have to have the love for the other human being or 
or, or creatures we work with too, you know, like, because otherwise I just see it from my perspective and we have to make, I wanted to make a space where I could discover my neighbors with a different framework, almost like by providing a frame. And I just want to give some examples, like one of my neighbors. So there were a lot of people from all over the place. So we had, we had a lot of difference or, or even like cultural differences, right? Like how do we meet? Where do we meet? How do we make a campaign? Who will benefit in what ways from the campaign? So there were a lot of very long conversations, but then there were also a lot of health issues. And for example, one of my neighbors, he had severe Parkinson's disease and he was an elderly man and he lived alone all his life and he had never married. And it was progressively getting worse and he couldn't get the support because a lot of people in these very more or less abundant communities didn't get medicated adequately because there, there was not even time for the medical establishment to really consider these people properly. So some of the aspects of the film, for example, are now used for medical students, how to speak to people who have a, such a different life experience from the from the people who are usually going into these professions. So John would would come by and had this when you when you have this an adjustment of medication and you can have this very wobbly you become wobbly so he was very wobbly and he would fall over and we had no lift and we lived on the fourth floor and at that moment our estate had been half emptied or, or two-thirds emptied so there weren't so many people and on our floor it was just me and John and on the floor beneath us was just one more person then there was nobody and then was one more person underneath so it was quite empty so but John felt completely free or happy to come to our door and say, can I sleep on your couch for a few weeks? Without any, like he didn't, it, it seemed so natural. And we were like, of course you can. That was what that kind of community was. And, and that's how the film was made. And so in the film then, I filmed a lot of his process over seven years. And when I edited it together, I always show people the footage before I put it into the fine cut. So they have a chance to veto it or I don't feel comfortable about this or blah, blah, blah. So people feel also freer. They can trust me. They don't have to self-police while we're making work if they if they try something out, for example. And I took a lot of his stuff out where I'm showing him quite vulnerable, also talking to his GP and stuff. And he wanted everything in the film. And he wanted it in the film because he said, let me use the space to show other people like me who have nobody and who have no family and who don't are not married or have, you know, the loneliness that they go through is shared by somebody like me. That was really important to him. And, and that was such a such a big, beautiful gift also for me to be able to have this relationship with another human being and that trust that he knew that the work was good enough in his view that it would reach an audience, you know, that it wasn't just made for us. It was made for the world to see and to witness almost his life in relation to, to I, I thought it was beautiful. And, and there's a lot of joy also in the film and a lot of laughter and refusal to be pigeonholed. Even in the worst of circumstances, people are, are somebody called it early on, like it's the wayward lives. Like, and there was a, the, the neighborhood where we, where the estate was standing was a very, very amazing, amazing neighborhood, which was full of, yeah, all the people who didn't really fit in anywhere else would live here until the last 15 years. Now it's gentrified and it's one of the most expensive neighborhoods as, as it happens with all of them. How long did the film take to make from when you started filming to when you felt like this is the final edit? Seven years it was. And it was just because... That's how long it took for the estate to be demolished from when I started. So once I knew that the estate would be demolished, I started filming. And then seven years, but I knew, so in the beginning, I didn't even know what's going to be. 
which are so we're going to make it for an archive for the for the library and just playing around and but then the more and more stuff happened it was amazing because people also bring things to you and then we started to have workshops trying to explore things and people wanted to re to do reenactments and creative reenactments right like not not standardized reenactments and they wanted to also perform versions of their lives and they wanted to, to participate and they wanted to be shown and seen and by the time the my flat was boarded up i was the amongst the last people to leave it was seven years um that form of immersive filmmaking where you know you have deep relationships with people and the estate that you live in it takes its own kind of toll that the seven years is an incredible duration to be working on, on a project i'm wondering clearly there's a lot of joy and excitement in the method and the process of the work but there's also an emotional maybe a hit or something else in in the process that that can be quite personal and i'm wondering how your mode or, or method of, of filmmaking affects you it's a very good question that really continues also into all my other projects because each of them has dealt with people who have survived extreme circumstances and i i have to hold spaces with people and i can hold them because i myself i feel like come from such a crazy childhood like i've seen like i've experienced stuff which was so bad that i feel like everything is really good now and it's like, it sounds nuts. And but I have a huge tolerance, but I also have boundaries. Like it's interesting because because the object is the film, right? So people know it's for the film. So I'm not there to be a friend or a therapist. The friendships develop because over time, like friendships develop, I feel like, but there's respect. Even with the with the people I work with whom I don't necessarily develop a deep friendship with, but there's a there's a, a kinship. Because we, for example, also over time, we negotiate these spaces, right? So I'm not, we are figuring out something together and I have boundaries if people, I mean, I can't really describe it, but I have very good boundaries, I feel like, but they can't be fixed either because they shift and they change. But I can say, I feel like I have to be able to say to somebody, I cannot have the time with you now, that space with you now, because I'm tired or exhausted. And if I can't do that, then I know it's a dangerous territory. I'm not honest enough. So I feel like I have to just be very honest as a human being to in approach in such approaches. And it's almost more important for me to think about these kind of structures when there's more when there's a bigger structure involved. Like with my film two two films after Here for Life, that became almost a much more important question because the structures that exist that are dependent very much on on an idea of how to work that can be very troublesome in relationship to, to another way of working. And you have to negotiate these structures and you have to have contracts or clear agreements with people. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your project, Civil Rights. We haven't had a chance to watch that myself, but I've read a few articles about it. But wondering where the idea for that, that project came from. So Civil Rights came after I finished Erase and Forget, which is a film which I made over 10 years that came out two years after Estate. And that was such an that was an exhausting project on other levels because it was dealing with such extreme violence. It was about a special forces, a former special forces soldier who was the inspiration for for many fiction films but also he perpetrated extreme violence and he was instrumentalized and a hero until he fell from grace when he turned against this government and then became an extremist in a different way that was my film about cinema almost like how is cinema violent how is the structures of cinema the dreaming structures of cinema perpetuate violence through ideology and through the funding structures who's funding what and why <laughs> anyway i was exhausted by it because i also had written so many articles about it it was such a battle against all the different structures 
in in that way. And I just wanted to make a film without people, uh, like without faces of people, because people always identify. So so when it comes to extreme cases such as with the special forces and and and, and international politics, where we, for example, have somebody we see even the language like friendly fire versus um, killing somebody or whatever or collateral damage. We identify with the face and we look at the face like Trump. It's like this whole film which led to, to the kind of history where you could explore Trump or Reagan or the Dallas brothers. It doesn't really matter any of those. But there's an identification with the hero. And I wanted to make a film where where I could, through very simple questions, explore again the structures of violence, of racism, of poverty and of war in a really different way. And it was it, it was kind of started through Martin so I got a commission to participate and make a film for an event that celebrated Martin Luther King's anniversary of gaining a honorary doctorate at Newcastle in Newcastle at the university and the footage of him receiving that doctorate had been mislaid and then it was forgotten until it was uh, dug up by a researcher and so it was like a big scandal even like see even this history was forgotten um so quickly and it was also the context of like uh, yeah, right-wing nationalism in the UK in particular at that time. And so I was asked to do this film and I could have done whatever I wanted to do. So it, it didn't have to do anything with, with Martin Luther King. Um, but his speech on poverty and war and racism and the in- intertanglement between these three points, I believe in so much. And I wanted to explore them and I wanted to explore what does it mean today. So I just went again, like around the city of Newcastle into all the different neighborhoods and just asking people the questions. Why do you think we have war? What is poverty to you? And what is racism? And I went to work in all sorts of different configurations of communities again. And that was in order to have a shared uh, exploration almost of that topic without being able to immediately judge people by say this is I can identify you as this person so I wanted to rapture that a little bit and show the through the voice and through the thoughtfulness of the responses the yeah the kind of result it's a bit like Tashkafa it was a much more it was was a much similar methodology that I used with Tashkafa but without the image and then the images were all the kind of places and sites throughout history, a 400 uh, plus year history of resistance, where events happen, for example, like a struggle against a racist attack or a struggle for women's or transgender rights or a local cafe that would be welcoming to people, even if they had no money, that kind of stuff. So I was looking through a vernacular, but also official radical history. And I invited people to show me places and so it became a mixture of um, places that are found that are historically marked already, but then also places that had previously probably been unconsidered because they were vernacular histories. That's that film. So it's a very tender, I feel like for me, and gentle, but also again, fierce exploration of these themes. I want to ask you also to talk about um, Here for Life. I'm wondering if you can uh, talk to us about that really, really interesting project. So Here for Life was a, a project that is, it's, like all my projects, very dear to me, but that project, because it's been so recent, is very alive still inside of me because we are still, we were just momentarily also stopped touring with it and we are, we are just starting up touring again. It was a project that was made with a theatre maker, Adrian Jackson, 
who does specialize or specialize, he kind of developed or his whole company developed around Forum Theatre, which was the theatre of the oppressed by Auguste Boal. And he um, translated all of Auguste Boal's work into the into English. So all the stuff that I read um, on Auguste Boal was his translations. And when we found out, we was like, oh, my God. And he made a film with uh, a theatre play um, on King, based on King. And John Berger, who was doing the readings of King in Tashkafa, also participated in his king but we didn't know that of each other and so when he saw that my film was at the, at the film festival and film festival he came and he said oh my god i've made this play and john was there a few years ago and he his company is working predominantly with people who have experienced homelessness or recovering from addiction and they're also like a, a very supportive network that help on all sorts of other levels as well um, and provide support for people then to be um, able to act and perform their lives and versions of their lives, but also um, put on plays in all sorts of different ways all across the world. And so it's a radical pedagogic theatre practice, practice which I've always been drawn to. And so when we then thought, okay, how can we make a film about survival in London today. It was a very complicated collaboration because theatre is a very loud practice. You project outwards, right? You you rehearse from the floor. Uh, you talk with the audience. You need the audience. And film is exactly the opposite to me. It's quiet. A little moment tells you everything. It's about time. There was a lot of very vibrant conflict that we had to work through. And it was kind of important, I felt like, for the work because the work is very wayward, it's wayward and it's refusing to be pinned down and it's refusing any any of those people in the film are refusing to be single alive people and you can't say this person is like this or this person is like that and that was that came from this from this process that was beautiful and painful in many in many ways and um there's also a play in the film but the play was made for the uh, film and it was because of the audience. We wanted to tie in the audience. So there are all sorts of loops in the film that are so from the extremely delicate cinematic echo, you will see it because it's so it's very, very painterly. Like it was it's one of the most beautiful films I feel like I've done or been able to do because there was more funding attached to this film. And so I could work with an amazing cinematographer and Taina Gallis, who I worked with many times before but I couldn't work with her on that scale and like to find this kind of expression and then from that to the to the kind of very collective unruly improvised and overlapping scenes and the film plays a lot with storytelling so what things or what appears it's like truthful documentary it's really maybe not <laughs> and that which appears to be really not might really be so it's anyway you have to see it to to know what I mean <laughs> Uh, I wonder also, uh, you also um, work as a curator and you've been involved in uh, collectives before, like uh, Vision Machine, uh, Fugitive Images. I'm wondering if you can speak to some of your curatorial projects and also your involvement in, in collectives. So I, I think I'm a natural collaborator in in that I've learned very early on in order to make the work of a scale that I, I wish to make it. I have to collaborate because... It's so difficult to raise funding for that kind of work um, and collaborations. Therefore, if you find the right collaborations, you can enable each other to be tenfold instead of just doubling. That's uh, that's what's the beauty about collaboration. And so I collaborate across. So my co collaborations or collectives were across all sorts of different things. The Vision Machine was with uh, Christine Sin, Joshua Oppenheimer, and Michael Womedemo, where we tried to figure out how to make films with people in kind of self 
reimagining. And I mean, I don't know if you, you, you probably, everybody knows Josh's work now, but like he made the act of killing and the look of silence. And, um, but we worked together for 10 years to develop these kind of methodologies with community groups and also through the globalization tapes, for example, which is a film we made in Indonesia with a group of plantation workers who were unionizing. And instead of making again an expository, expository documentary, it was about how do you provide a platform where you can in, enable people to self-represent but it still also can become a, a film that can be shown internationally. So it's about a, a holding spaces in a certain way with people. And then people will go so much further than you could if you were to make an expository film, right? The imagination is so much stronger. Um, so that was one collective. And now with Fugitive Images, it was a necessary beginning because we needed to have a platform in order to raise funding for the works. But the people who were part of Fugitive Images right from the beginning also we make very different works and we have done many collaborations across architecture, infiltration into certain stratas of architecture through activism and poetry and filmmaking and writing and we invite different people in at different moments as well. It's, you know, I'm, it's, it's hard to, to be able to facilitate. I would like to facilitate more, but it's hard time-wise because I also want to make my own work. So what I'm trying to do is, for example, so all my work, so before I go into the curating, but all my work, when it makes the, the works I make with communities, all the funding is shared. So with the state, what happened? Um, because there were so many people involved and some people had passed away, some people moved away, couldn't find them because it was such a long period of time. The money goes back into a living archive into a kind of community-based archive that is growing with all the stories over time and it'll be made public at some point soon. So we're just testing it. Everybody's just uploading stuff over over some time already. And then in terms of Here for Life, everybody has a contract and people already, so we won two awards which had money attached to it. And so people got an equal share, which I think is really important. And we often forget as filmmakers to do that. And I, I would encourage it. And also with me, it's not about that I have enough funding money because I have to work also to make money. I don't come from money. I have no savings, right? So it's it's more about an ethics. I feel like you you work with people. We have to respect them, especially when we work with people who come from from backgrounds where there's very little economic advantage, and where people really struggle. And I feel like it's it's just not okay to just extract from communities in that way. I feel differently in different configurations, right? There are no rules, but I feel like about people. And then in terms of curating, so I I. I've been mentoring quite a lot throughout the years. And then I try the to, when I ever have an opportunity to put programs together or I'm asked to create a screening program, I will um, make a mixture of experienced people and maybe less experienced people in order to also ask different questions from us around. For example, I've just been filmmaker and focus at the Otherfield Festival, which is a really small festival with 150 people only in order to have proper conversations and there are lots of workshops and I programmed five films for the festival and they were all in com in communication with each other. One was by Nadia Kamel, which she made a long time ago and that was in, co in communication with a much more recent film that won a prize at the Amman International Film Festival of which I was a jury member. Um, so there were like intergenerational communications around identity and identity across the political lines that are drawn because we are often so much more than just one nationality in the world. And then um, younger filmmakers or older filmmakers who are just starting to make films uh, were also incorporated in that. So it's this kind of stuff more. So my curatorial stuff is very much looking at films or filmmaking expression as a conversation. 
perhaps I'm reading into it. I'm working on my own uh, project related to friendship and community. And one of the things I think about when I read about your work or see your work is this attempt to either form community or going into contexts where community is very ephemeral and shifting functions around the state, functions below the, the structures of domination, and this attempt to try to capture it in a, in a, in a in a different way that's still moving, that's not fixed. And and perhaps I'm just reading into it because my own uh, work is kind of moving into that, but wondering how you think about friendship and community in the context of your film work and other um, cultural work, because it seems very present in your work. For me, it's a kind of family making because I don't have a family, like a biological family. So for me, I think every work is part of trying to make a, temporal community that might last longer but it's about at that moment in time we come together quite intensely to figure something out together because I, I don't think we can figure stuff out by ourselves and what I bring often to these projects when I'm prompting them is I'm a filmmaker and I bring these skills but that doesn't mean that it's predetermined what it will look like but I will develop the cinematography and the eye I have a I have a very particular sense about beauty and how to give beauty and how to do justice to lives I feel so I would show my work and people can see it. And, you know, people can also say, I don't want to work with you, for example. But like, so friendship, it's it's important, I think, in my work that friendship doesn't have to be friendship. It can be collaborative, momentary friendship that's based on making something together. But it doesn't have to be more than that. Often it, it will be more than that, but it takes away the pressure. It, it, it allows for for difficult conversations to happen in a hopefully healthy way too when you're making a work with somebody i mean it's a, it's it might sound unformed but like because we i just came out of this weekend where we did loads of workshops and i was really talking about clumsiness and sometimes i'm seeking i'm seeking something and i'm not quite sure how to get there and i need time out i need time to just think but be in a space and that for me is when when people offer me friendship they give me that space people I work with. I feel it. And they were like, they give me the time to figure that out. Or they figure it out for me by offering something else. Um, and and that's usually that moment which the industrial filmmaking would say, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. Let's get a director. Be a director. Be strong. Be this. Be. And so that's why we have all this kind of unfinished work in my view. I see a lot of films that are accomplished and whatever, but they're unfinished because I never went to this journey with the people and why make that work I feel like unless it's for money why make that work if your life is part of that thinking through our lives are really precious and fragile and yeah so it's about seeking seeking respect and friendship I guess friendship as is a is a gesture towards being a friend which is different I think so friendship as this wanting to uh, like a, a temporary community, almost like a temporary autonomous zone where things can happen regardless and otherwise and regardless of the the structures of domination or oppression or whatever it's called, but without being denied the full expression of joy. Even if there's no joy, if it's hard, but there, ha you know, the, there has to be a refusal to be reduced. So that's the difference, I think, in my work, to work with people who have sometimes go still through a lot but it's not therapy. That's what's really important, I feel like. In your mode of making film, which um, artists or filmmakers have inspired your, your own work? 
I just showed a film which I I really inspired my work, but there's also a lot of stuff wrong with it. And, and it changes, okay? Can I just say it changes literally every six months probably. But Dushan Hanak's Pictures of the Old World, I don't know if anyone of you has seen it, but um, it's a film made with people at the time of, of a radical shift of technology and is asking the profound questions, what is important in life? And that's, I mean, the way in which they use music is sometimes quite intense. This comes from its time. But I think it's an incredibly incredible approach about old age in a different way is about old age as as a celebration of having lived that long rather than oh, I'm so sorry that you have gone so old you know I really love that film so much and I've always been drawn to the kind of feistiness yeah of people so that film is also you can't reduce it and I think that Dushan Hanak's it was just starting to make films when he made that film and it's clumsy like I, I love clumsy or it's it's stumbling. It's it's unsure sometimes, and I love that. When I see that in a film, where I can see the filmmaker um, is trying to be really open with an open attention, and it's imperfect in terms of the conventional way of seeing a film. I, I love that. And then of course, um, I mean, so many films. The the first film which I, I fell in love with cinema was it. It sounds such a cliche because of all the adverts that happened twenty years ago. But it was Tarkovsky. It was Stoker. It was the film that blew my mind on a black and white television. I can't, I, and that level of working with nothing, like with nothing, and yet it means everything, is something I have, I, I strive to still. And then, you know, Belovi, uh, for example, uh, loads of, oh, loads of, uh, a very chitty lover. I mean, like, oh, there's, there's so many, it's endless. I <laughs> don't I mean, there are so many. Kira Moraktova was also. I think a lot of people who had to struggle to make films. I like their films because you can see if they if they then made a film, they go like fuck off. I'm gonna just make make it how I want to make it. If they got, they didn't get enough support and they had to find a way. It's those films I, I tend to like a lot if they had like a real vision. I, I think yeah. <laughs> what are you uh, working on now, or do you have other? projects sort of on the go mm. so i just finished a three screen installation called shelter in place which i made during our lockdown but it's not really about lockdown but it was during the lockdown everybody there were there were supposed to be no homeless people left out on the street and there were of course so many because so many people chose not to go into the hotels because they were so dismal but also people with no recourse to public funds were forced to survive in a different way or people who were undocumented so i worked with one person in our local park who chose to stay out in the park through circumstances was found themselves homeless and chose to stay out and the community around that person during the whole time of the lockdown was incredible the the way of support by people who had literally nothing and not treating somebody who was going through this as a victim but saying this person is now just need some space and we're going to cook for them while they need that space was the most beautiful thing. And yeah, so I've just finished that and also looking at, and you wouldn't know, you would have not known if you were not attuned to what it means to live out in the street, because there's a lot of people who live out in the street who, you know, pass as housed people. And so there's the whole question also of, of what does it mean to be housed and unhoused and the kind of whole politics around it and, and literally taking agency away from people by offering them housing when it's not really housing. 
um, is uh, it's something that concerns me obviously deeply um, because of all the stuff that's going on around gentrification and the right to, to to live a life with dignity that is encroached on more and more and also nature and it's a public park and it's one of the very very few I think I was shocked after I made this film and I showed it and there were some talks also by architectures and city planning people who said that the I think up to 70% of London's parks are now privately owned but we still think they're public um, so there are very very few public parks in London that are truly public and that was one of them that's why the police can't move you on whereas another park I go to which I always was convinced was public and then I saw the police which look not even like police they don't even have to identify themselves can move you on and it's not a public park anymore so that was that was really important to me to 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 think through also with that person it was a it was a really deep collaboration on all aspects and uh, they made the sounds from the sounds from the park and then made a composition which is beautiful because they're a sound maker as well as a performance artist and so it was a it was an amazing collaboration but it was like about uh, the, the deep question is around like public space and public ownership and public libraries public everything that's been taken away while we still have it i might as well want to make a memory of it <laughs> Yeah. Andrea, is there anything you'd like to add? I'm uh, grateful to have done this with you. I'm making two new films. I thought like I just talked so much making two new films, but they will take me also a while to make. That's all I want to say. One is called Wayfaring Stranger. And another one is called I'm Not Yet Sure. I mean, that's not the title, but I don't know what it's going to be called yet. But it's going to be in Ramallah. Over three years I'm making it with people. And the other one is going to be made across the UK and Portugal. So let's see what will happen. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to your work as well, to see your work. And... Andrew, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I, of course, am a huge uh, fan of your work and really wonderful to, to speak with you and to um, listen how you think about your work. I know that in our own uh, School for Contemporary Arts, there's a lot of young filmmakers that are going to be really interested to, to hear from you. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Screening October 15th at 5 p.m. on SFU's Vancouver campus in the Woodwards Building, SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and Real Causes present Here for Life. Here for Life is a feature film marking the culmination of a long collaboration between filmmaker Andrea Luca Zimmerman and theater maker Adrian Jackson, a group of Londoners and a dog. The cast dance together, steal together, eat together, agree and disagree, celebrate their differences and share their talents. They cycle, they play, they ride a horse. The lines between one person's story and another's performance are blurred and the borders between reality and fiction are porous. Eventually, they come together on a makeshift stage in a place between two train tracks. They spark a debate about the world we live in, who has stolen what from whom, and how things might be fixed. Register for this free event at the link in the show notes below. Masks will be mandatory, and guests will need to provide a proof of vaccination against COVID-19. We hope to see you there. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Andrea Lucas Zimmerman. You can learn more about her work in the links in the show notes. There you can also find a link to the full transcript of this conversation. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>